We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much. So many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody back to Steve Cunningham with uh, Wisdom of Our Father series continuation with Father Daniel Heenan, uh, the priest of attorney of St. Peter down in Mexico, south of the border. And before we start off, Father, welcome back. But can you lead us off in the Regina Chaley, please? Yes, of course. Nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Regina Chaley, Letare, Alleluia. Quiacquem meruisti portare, Alleluia. Resurrexit, sicudixit, Alleluia. Ora per nobis Deum, Alleluia. Gaudia Letare Virgo Maria, Alleluia. Quia Sorexit Dominus Veri, Alleluia. Oremos. Deus, qui per resurrectionem filii tui, Domini nostri Iesu Christi, mundum letificare dignatus es, presta quesumus opereius genetricem Virginem Mariam, perpetue capiamos Gaudia Vitae, per unum Christum Dominum Nostrum. Amen. Nomine Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. And just for those, for education for people at home, we say that during this time period, right? At Easter, between Easter and Pentecost, right? Yeah, that's right. It takes the place of the, the Angelus, usually, um, <clears throat> uh, that we say at 6, noon, and 6 in the rest of the year. But during Easter season, we change to the Regina Chaley. So you can always come here and learn something, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, liturgically, the uh, you know the church has a different Marian antiphon um, that is associated with the divine office for different seasons of the of the year. You know, so it's not only the Regina Chaley. So we also sing it at the end of Compline, for instance, and formerly even more often. But um, in other times of years, it's the the Salve Regina or the Ave Regina Chelorum. There's a variety of Marian antiphons that enrich the liturgical life of the church. That's awesome. Yeah, most people, I think everyone just thinks to do the Angelus or the Salve at the end and never thinks about the change. <laughs> um, yeah. And that was, I think we mentioned it a couple of week, uh, week ago with another priest that that was the, the ending of it was uh, Pope St. Gregory the Great wrote that last part uh, during the play, during the procession. Of the Salve or of the, the, of the Regina Chaley? Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a yeah. really great article on Rorate about that, uh, talking about. I can't remember where it came from. Golden Book is translated. People were literally dropping dead in the procession. Uh, blood was oh, coming yeah. off the sword of Saint Michael. It was reading it was. I mean, it wasn't actually probably not cool to see and all that, but reading <laughs> it makes you a little bit more. Wow, this was wasn't like a clean blade going in and sunshine and lollipops. It was 
people were dropping dead during the walk. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, intense. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're going to talk about another time when the, the masses were, or the bells were silenced was the La Cristiada or the Cristeros. Uh, some of you might have been familiar with the movie Greater Glory and Falahinen's right smack dab in the middle of ground zero where the, the resistance was, where the Cristeros basically was born. Would that be the right way? Yeah. Um, we're here in, in Jalisco, where Guadalajara is, it was one of the, the hot spots where um, there were more martyrs. In fact, um, I heard several years ago, I don't know if it's still true, but they said they say that uh, the state of Jalisco in Mexico has more canonized saints than all of the rest of the Americas combined wow. as a result of the, the Cristiada. And it's amazing because this horrible religious persecution um, broke out not so long ago, right? So just a little bit less than 100 years ago and just south of our, our borders, and many people don't know much about it. I remember reading that they were still finding them in the 50s and killing them in the states, going up mm -hmm. in the states and finding them. Yeah, well, uh, in fact, um, more people died. There were more martyrs uh, after the conflict officially ended because they, uh, they, they made a truce and they made all the Cristeros turn over their weapons to the government. And then they went over, they went around and rounded them up and killed many of them. <laughs> so be careful yeah you got that what happened in the Vendee they, they could have they could have taken Paris they didn't put down the weapons they got a, basically exterminated same yeah. thing Steros. obedience yeah. is a tough thing <laughs> that's right <laughs> definitely so how did that come about it was the, the was the constitution before uh, President Calles was before that that it led up to all this or was it uh, decades in the making. Well, first of all, I'll just preface this and say I'm I'm not an expert in 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 this, just kind of a fan. So um, uh, there's uh, there's some great studies. For instance, um, there's a book by uh, Jean Meyer that I highly recommend if you want to later read more of the, the the details. I'm still kind of learning because uh, it's just something that's so so interesting, but. Uh, the book by Jean Meyer that has some great photos is outstanding uh, because the, the man came to Mexico to, to study the, the Cristiada as an atheist, and he left as a Catholic. The testimony of what he, what he found uh, co converted him. So the, the history of Mexico is, um, is really quite a, a convoluted history um, of very, so many different interests. Um, what, of, of people that is very Catholic, you know, the, our, our Lady of Guadalupe appeared here and uh, the, the people have the Catholic faith in their heart, but there's also a long history of a government that has been anti-Catholic. Anti and the, the origins really go back uh, to the colonial period, a, a, a conflict between uh, what turned into royal enlightenment interests when the French came to the to the Spanish throne, um, and uh, enlightenment ideas about rationalizing the the faith and too many feast days and need to be more productive and uh, all this kind of stuff that um, uh, led to uh, 
uh, eventually the independence of, of Mexico that had a lot of religious overtones because many people thought, um, well, it was time for you know, the Mexico to come of age, leave, leave the mother country, thank her for all that she gave us, you know, and, and become independent because uh, they wanted to defend the purity, according to some at least, the purity of the Catholic faith. So if you look on the, the Mexican flag and the, the, the colors, uh, the red, the white, and the green, they say traditionally that the white is for the purity of the, the Catholic faith. Hmm. But there was mixed in with all that um, the seeds of, of a great conflict because many people suspect that a lot of the first revolutionaries were Masons or had Masonic influence. Mm -hmm. uh, their great hero, Miguel Hidalgo, uh, was a priest, but not a very good priest. He was uh, condemned of heresy. Uh, he was a womanizer. And um, there's some studies that suggest that he was probably a Mason him, himself. And so he rallied the, the poor to this, this cause, um, but not always with the purest of, of intentions. So right from the, from the beginning of, of Mexico as an independent nation, there was a conflict between the, the church and, and the state. And um, it, it came to, it, it, it went, it started increasing. Um, you can probably point to Benito Juarez um, in the um, later half of the 19th century, uh, who's who's like the George Washington of, of Mexico. A every town has at least 100 things named after him. Um, and, and he's famous because he was indigenous and he's looked at as the great reformer. Okay? But he, he was also in many ways a traitor to his country, uh, uh, according to more traditional minded people, because he sold a lot of Mexico to the United States and oil interests and railroad interests. And he also started persecuting the church. He confiscated a lot of church land. Um, he had to pay for his wars uh, to solidify his power. And so uh, he said, well, we're going to confiscate all the wealth that the, the church has from the colonial period, and we're going to pay off the war debts, and uh, we're going to give land to the, the, the common people. Well, actually, that didn't happen because uh, I forget the exact numbers, but it's if we want to kind of make an estimate, it's like he confiscated something like $40 million in those days of, of church wealth. And like half a million of that went uh, to actually pay off debts and veterans and everything. The rest went to his cronies, okay? So a common, a common uh, thread in, in the story of persecution of the church, right. right? Henry VIII paid his cronies with land confiscated from the church. And Benito Juarez started doing things like he made it um, illegal for the church to educate. Uh, so he kicked the, the church out of the, of the schools. The Jesuits had already gone, right? That was a, 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 a bad point in history in terms of them abandoning all the universities and everything. But now the rest of the religious couldn't run schools. The, the church couldn't, um, for, for example, um, he separated the church marriage and the civil marriage, something we still have to, to, to this day, um, where Mexicans like, like the French and other countries have this, this laicized anti-clerical society that says um, you have to go get married before justice of the peace. And uh, if you want a sacramental wedding, you have to go to the church. Now, the interesting thing is Benito Juarez, who made that rule, when his daughter got married, um, he didn't even allow her to have a civil marriage. He said, civil marriages are for prostitutes. And so 
he uh, he procured a, a a religious wedding for his his own daughter. Right, so a little bit of a double center there. Um, <laughs> so the Constitution, uh, the reforms he made, okay, were one step, and then there there was a new Constitution uh, uh, made in. I think it was 1917 in in, uh, in Mexico that put in more anti-clerical uh, provisions, mm-hmm. and that for a while they weren't enforced very much. Uh, they kind of looked the other way because you have this big problem of the. It's one thing to say it, but to actually do it, you're going to have a revolution on your hands because of the fact that the church is 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 more present to people in the in. The rural areas of the country, you know, than the government, right? They respect much more the gov- the church than, than the government. So you have to tread tread carefully. But um, it, getting into the the twenties and um, with uh, with well, Calles in particular, but also uh, Obregón and and others, um, the the restrictions on the church became more and more severe. And uh, the first step. Actually, there's a couple of um, uh, encyclicals that uh, Pope Pius XI uh, wrote addressing the situation that um, are quite interesting to read because he he laments um, that, that this is amongst, he says, I think in one of them, since the apostolic time, since the early persecutions in, in Rome, we haven't seen things so terrible as what we're seeing in, in Mexico right now. And so the, the, the church asked permission of the Pope to basically uh, put the whole country in, under interdict. Although, the, to clarify, they said it's not, it wasn't an interdict because the sacraments kept being celebrated. But, but the, the, gov- the church took the decision, okay, we can't operate under these conditions because the government was saying things like, okay, uh, in certain regions, you can only have so many priests. Right. And, and the proportions were horrible. You know, it's like one priest for every 50,000 people, you know, or, or in other places they're saying um, you can only have this percentage of priests. And the only priests that can uh, work are those who are married. Right. So basically making it impossible. Yeah. <laughs> so they said we can't work under these circumstances. So we're going to pull all the priests out of the churches. Okay? Churches are we're giving them to the, the care of the faithful, and the priests can't be there anymore so that the people rise up against this unjust government. <clears throat> so more as things change, more as stay the same, right? Uh, <laughs> I remember, what was it? The, there's, I got a, quite a few books. I had Meyer's book on it, but one of them goes, uh, Poor Mexico, so far from Rome, so close to the United States. <laughs> right. um, yeah, they, they have some, they, they, they have a... Uh, they have a saying here, something like, uh, you know, when when the United States gets the gets a cold, Mexico gets gets a, the flu or something like this. Uh, <laughs> I even heard P- President Coolidge uh, was siding with the the Mexican government during this. Well, yeah, and and that's a, a interesting tale of intrigue uh, because the role the United States had for a long time with um, with the Mexican government has been rather uh complicated um there was a a great fascination on the part of the early mexican liberals with everything in the united states when they made their first constitution they wanted to be like the french revolution and like the american revolution so it was you know 
a few decades later that Mexico gained its independence, 1812, I believe. Um, and, and they wanted to imitate everything uh, in the United States. So much so that there's a, there's a tale about the uh, American ambassador arrives um, and one of the, the first, or one of the first Mexican presidents has made this great uh, room in one of the palaces. And um, they, in this, in this huge dining room where all these European dignitaries are and everything, on one end of the room, there's a big portrait of George Washington and on the other end of the room, there's some portrait of a, of a Greek god. Um, and uh, this was sort of their idea of, of liberalism, right? <clears throat> wow. And yeah, so um, the, the American government ended up siding, for instance, with Benito Juarez because they, they thought Benito Juarez was going to restore order. And in a certain, you, you can kind of, it's easy to judge from in retrospect, mm -hmm. but the history of Mexico was horrible. They had, you know, so many different changes of presidents and leaders and murderers and all this stuff. And Benito Juarez brought a certain amount of uh, like order and stability and ruled for a long time. And then even after him um, with Porfirio Diaz, who had an extremely long presidency running always on the, the, um, the, uh, the platform of no reelection. They said, after me, after I get everything in order, there'll be no reelection. So the United States saw them as adding stability, which was in their interest. And also Benito Juarez sold them lots of land and everything. So um, when it came to the to the Cristiata, yeah, the American government ended up selling uh, weapons to the forces of Calles to put down this supposed rebellion, which was really an uprising to defend basic rights of being able to have church, have mass. <clears throat> yeah, that was the weird part because Silent Cow was one that, when they asked him about putting a phone in the White House, told them just to walk down the street. He wasn't going to put a phone in the White House. Thought it was <laughs> an overreach. Yeah, <laughs> let's send them a bunch of weapons. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, the Knights of Columbus uh, had a positive, uh, had a helpful role because when they became aware, probably heeding the call of uh, Pius XI, who brought brought the attention of what was going on in Mexico to the rest of the world. The Knights of Columbus came to the, came uh, to help the, the Cristeros in their, in their effort. Yeah. There's a, there's a March in DC where the KKK is protesting them. The K, the Knights of Columbus bringing in refugees mm -hmm. during the time. But uh, yeah, was it like they had an underground group down in Mexico too, helping out before they basically got unified uh, with the, uh, yeah, so so the idea was uh, um, at first the you know the idea wasn't to take up arms, but to 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 do a boycott. So another great figure um, is uh, Blessed Anacleto Gonzalez Flores, uh -huh. um, who we need to do a we need a project to translate his works uh, because he is uh, an outstanding figure, uh, martyred I think at the age of twenty seven. Um, but he started something like 30 different newspapers in, in, before he died a, a martyr. So he was an intellectual and um, wrote, uh, for instance, there's one book, um, uh, it's called Tu Serás Rey, You Will Be King. And it's a call to the youth. And, and he's got this, this stunning, um, compelling rhetoric 
where he says, you know, the youth are always looking for something adventurous. You know, they have this natural instinct to give yourself to, to, to something, right? And our age demands that we, we be ready for martyrdom because the, our nation depends on, on you. You know, you have to come to the rescue of the cause of, of, of the faith. And he goes on to explain how, um, you know, every age has uh, de uh, been defined by its heroes, those who are willing to risk the most for a cause that's greater than, than themselves. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he did exactly that. So he went to mass daily. He was a lawyer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he, he was married with two daughters, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and he organized this Catholic Action League, um, a, trying first a boycott. So they wanted to collapse the economy um, by uh, saying that, you know, the Catholics are only going to buy the most minimal things to show the government that, that we're not happy with with all this. Um, and it started to it started to work, actually. But um, the, the government came back with greater, greater restrictions and it became evident that they weren't going to be able to, to do anything unless they uh, they take up arms. <clears throat> How, how many days or weeks or months did they do the boycotting before they said, you know, we got to we got to do it? I'm I'm not uh, yeah I'm not sure exactly how long that lasted. I'd have to look I'd have to look that up. But it lasted. It, it went through different phases too, where they they uh, try increase what they were boycotting, and uh, he was um, uh, they would send up balloons, for instance, with these pamphlets. To, so and so they would scatter all over the the city so people would um, know what they were being asked to do but um, ev eventually um, it, the peaceful uh, protest was was not going to be was not going to be sufficient uh, the government became more and more obstinate in their uh, attack on the church and is that was honorable of them right it was just war theory they got to try every option before violence basically. yeah yeah um and uh and and as a and as a last resort right to 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 mobilize the the peasants really it was mostly peasants from the from the outlying areas who you know uh, may not have known their catechism very well i i imagine but they 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 knew you know that if someone insults our lady and if someone uh, takes away the the mass and and it became quite obvious because uh, the the measures against the church went on increasing, right? So they they were looking for pretexts to blame the the Catholics for violence against the the government and 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 all this to it, uh, increase the the measures they were taking, um, and so the, it began by limiting um, the church to, for instance, not having to only exercise ministry in churches and, and their own buildings. They couldn't do processions. They outlawed the cassock. And then they flat out outlawed the mass, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's when you get the, the biggest um, uh, amount of martyrs uh, or, or figures like um, Miguel Pro. Actually, Miguel Pro was earlier, but um, Miguel Pro uh, exemplifies what many priests had to do, mm -hmm. right? Uh, he went around... Um, in disguise, you know, and, there, and, and there's pictures of him even, you know, he would dress up like a mechanic or a bum even and lay on a park bench 
and people would would uh, come and go to confession with him, and he looked like just a bum, a drunk bum laying there. <laughs> I, I think it was your uh, father Romanowski had a sermon on him, and he mentioned that the he knew they were the authorities were looking for him, and he'd go up in between two federalities and go, "Hey, did you get that guy yet?" And he said, "No," <laughs> and just walk off. <laughs> <laughs> they said, you know, God gives each each of us the graces and talents and everything we need. So if you read his biography, it says he was a practical jokester since his since his youth, <laughs> and it came to be it came to be quite useful. And his brother too was was a martyr because his brother actually was accused of of attempting to kill uh, the president. They blamed him um, because of his role in organizing this uh, the the resistance and everything, and uh, they they framed him for planting a bomb in the car. Of the, the of Obregon. <clears throat> who, uh, how many priests in general do you think were uh, martyred? I mean, ah, uh, yeah, that, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There were, there were lots. Not all have been canonized. Uh, so, um, in in Jalisco, the the diocese of Guadalajara did a great effort to to get many of them canonized. But there's others. There's more. You know, for instance, we have a. One of our deacons, uh, who's going to be ordained a priest this this year, um, he uh, is related. He has like a great uncle or something who can't remember the relation exactly, but uh, who was martyred in the in the Cristiada. And um, we, I, I went with uh, Deacon Javier um, a cu- couple months ago to um, uh, meet the retired cardinal uh, here, who was instrumental in getting all these. Uh, saints canonized and he was disappointed that he didn't know about that that case and he said well well you have to send me the information uh maybe we can uh organize another campaign for to canonize even more of these these martyrs wow wow and not and not just priests but many many lay people too um right a a very interesting you mentioned the uh the movie for greater glory Mm -hmm. which kind of mixes a number of stories so historically it's not 100% accurate, but I, I think it's good. It shows, it brings a part of history to life that many people are unfamiliar with. Um, but uh, there's a great book by Graham Greene uh, called The Power and the Glory. Mm-hmm. So Graham Greene, if, if you're not familiar, is one of these literary converts, an English author who was fascinated with Mexico. So he came over to Mexico during this whole thing to observe, to see. And the, the book, The Power and the Glory, which was actually on the index for a short while because it, the main character is a, a priest who's disgraceful, mm-hmm. um, who uh, fathered uh, children and wasn't interested in, in, in being a very good priest for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it starts out with him, you know, lamenting his own uh, unworthiness, but being amazed at the faith of the people. So he would, you know, have he had this mask kit he would go, go around with, mm-hmm. and there everyone there was like a line of people who wanted to carry his mask kit, and they knew that if you got caught carrying his mask kit, you would be killed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> to have a mask item was illegal, mm-hmm. and he 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 reflects in this how he's too cowardly to die a martyr, but yet somehow he's involved in the martyr, martyrdom of these other people who are so eager to lay down their, their, their lives just by carrying his mask kit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I think uh, Tampa was just blood-drenched altars. Mm, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've read that one in uh, No God Next Door. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, like like I said, the, there's there's so many interesting stories that, you know, need to be discovered. Um, so I've, I've um, enjoyed um, traveling to little towns uh, when, when I have a chance and I need to do it more. But um, you go to a little town here or there where there's a martyr and, and they haven't really capitalized on this, like in Europe where, where these places become pilgrimage sites. Although I have the, I've had the desire to organize a, a pilgrimage to try and follow the route of these unknown martyrs. Um, but you can come across so many interesting stories. I, I discovered recently um, a martyr, um, uh, Saint uh, Ro Rodrigo Aguilar, um, who um, in a he was killed in a town, little town called Ejutla. And I went to this town, and it's still very traditional because it's very remote, um, and and there's still like people. Um, praying their rosary out walking around in the town square and the old people always take their hat off to the priest, just a lot of, and they, they pull the bells for the Angelus and mm -hmm. they've preserved a lot of this. And this, this saint um, was, uh, had to go into hiding um, and was betrayed then by the person who was, who was uh, protecting him. And be, so he got beaten up and they stripped of all his, all his goods, even his clothes, right? And he, he has to walk all these miles to hide in, hide in a convent. And um, there he opened up uh, a seminary in secret. And he had to celebrate mass. It was like six months or so. And I got to celebrate mass on that, on that altar. That was wow. awesome. And the nuns, the same order of nuns who are still there, um, we just came with, um, with a group of seminarians and we decided we'd have a sung mass in this altar uh, and none of the nuns were going to attend mass. They had already gone to mass, but they started observing the traditional mass and it dawned on them that that's, that's like St. Rodrigo's mass. And they all started coming into their cloister section. And then there's a seminary in town. The word spread and all the seminarians came just out of the blue to attend this, this mass. You know? So St. Rodrigo was there running his little seminary and uh, the, the, the soldiers got word of where he was hiding. So they came and the people come to him and they said, you know, you got to you got to run. And he says, I have a duty to do. And he said, and he says, they, they, they can take my life, but they're not going to take our faith. So he sent all his seminarians away that he was giving them a Latin test. So they were probably happy that. that <laughs> but he destroyed all the records of, of the seminarians because he didn't want them to get get caught. Because this was common, they were ordaining priests in secret, you know, in basements and places. Mm -hmm. And um, they ended up kept, they caught him there, and they walked him through through the town, and they hung him from a mango tree, oh, wow. but which is still there. That it's kind of like a relic, this mango tree where they where they hung him. Mm -hmm. And as he was being hung, he he gave his rosary to one of the executioners as as a as a parting gift and said, "I forgive you." And uh, so his relics are, are there. Oh, wow. Yeah, awesome, awesome stories. Uh, one question that came in, Sarah asked, are priests ever allowed to take up arms? Uh, priests are not supposed to, uh, to take up arms uh, normally, uh, uh, although there's many cases of, of exceptions, um, even, 
even popes. <laughs> Pope, Pope Leo X was famous for uh, leading troops into battle in the Renaissance. Um, uh, so, for instance, that's one of the debates in the about the movie uh, because the priest uh, took up arms. So apparently, there were cases of, of priests who did, you know, take 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 up arms in the uh, in the in the Christiata. But the vast majority of them keep attention. the faithful uh, computer just went haywire um mm. jose blessed jose now saint jose oh yeah everyone's everyone everyone knows about him right yeah um and and he's from a town not too far from here so um in the town of sawayo mm -hmm. um he's not canonized because he's from a different diocese so it depends on how they organized these, or he was only recently canonized, sorry. Um, but uh, so I, I, I've been able to celebrate mass near his tomb as well. So uh, Jose Sanchez del Rio from Sohuayo. Now Sohuayo was really uh, the first town where there was, where violence broke out. And when you go to Sohuayo, you can visit not only the relics of uh, San, uh, Jose Sanchez del Rio, but uh, there's a museum there, and there's actually a whole bunch of other martyrs, unknown. But what happened is when the government ordered the churches closed, okay, so I mentioned that first the, the church ordered the priests to leave, but they left the churches open. Then the government closed the churches, and a group of men in Sohuayo said, over our dead bodies. And literally, that's, that's what happened. They would not let the government uh, go into the church because what they were doing in many places they were, they were turning the uh, the churches into to stables mm -hmm. and and actually there's a church right here close to where we are um, where I've celebrated mass too where they, that's they literally put horses in the in the church you know they took it and they put horses and other animals so Jose Sanchez del Rio of course got himself uh, uh, in the sights of the enemies for martyrdom because he said you can't do this when he was in prison and he let all the uh, chickens out of the cages because they were training uh, cock for cockfights and he said this is blast you know this is sacrilegious and he let all the animals escape and then he went back to a cell and then they found him in the morning and they're like you know who did this he's like yeah I did this um, so <laughs> and and what an example he is because he's the one that, you know, he begged his mother to let him join the army when he was like 13 years old or something. Mm -hmm. And his mother, of course, like any mother would say to their 13 year old, no. Um, but he said to his mother, but mom, never has it been easier to win heaven than now. And so his mom couldn't uh, resist that, that child, childlike faith. And so his role was to, um, to uh, go around the, the army uh, in the camp and ask all the soldiers if they prayed the rosary that day. Like he was reminding them like why, why we're fighting. So in Sawayo, um, when I last went there, we got to meet um, someone who, an older person who had stories, like a still living memory who told us about um, some miracles that had occurred um, by around the, the tomb, right? So um, it, let me make sure I'm remembering the details well, but um, one of the soldiers uh, who I think was involved in his 
execution um, was uh, still around in that town. And they had set up a little shrine to him shortly after his death. And this soldier was recalcitrant. So he would go into the, uh, he, he, would, he wanted to destroy the, the shrine. So he, uh, he went in with a couple of other soldiers, I think, and they were going to fire on the little shrine uh, that they, they had made. But the guns wouldn't go off. <clears throat> so they, they went outside and they shoot the rifles up in the air and they work fine. Then they go back inside and they take aim. Doesn't work. And they did this like, like three times. And finally, the guy realized this is a, this is a message. So the, the soldier dropped his weapons, began to, to, to cry. And this person from the town said that that soldier almost never left the shrine for the whole rest of his life. He converted and would be seen there in front of the relics, praying every single day until he died like a couple of years earlier than before we had made that visit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Incredible. Um, the Constitution that there is now is not much different from what it was then, right? It's nothing really got repealed. Is it, am I correct on that? Well, some things changed over time. So when the whole conflict ended, um, the, um, the, there was a negotiation between the church and the, and the state. And, and many people, actually, there's still criticisms, even saying that, that the pope betrayed the, the church in uh, advocating for the, to end the, the war prematurely and at, telling the church to accept terms that weren't favorable in the end to, to the church. All the, the bishops had all left the country. The bishops had all left to most of them to the United States. There's actually, I think uh, it was still functioning uh, a, a Jesuit seminary in New Mexico. It was specifically to train priests to go back to, to Mexico um, when the Jesuits left. Um, but uh, when the bishops came back and they did this negotiation so that the churches would be open, they accepted some, some terms that were not so favorable, like the, the fact that uh, you couldn't have processions in the street, uh, the priests couldn't wear clerical garb, the marriage thing, various, various restrictions. So uh, we live, even to this day, um, under uh, some difficult conditions as far as that's concerned. People are surprised. Even, people here even talk about how they say, you know, um, how is it possible the United States is a Protestant country, but yet the, the church has more rights there than it does in, in Mexico? And it's true to a certain extent, like you can't give a tax deductible donation to the church here in Mexico. It does, they don't allow that. But um, some things lightened up in 1978, 1979. Uh, John Paul II made a historic visit I think John Paul II came to Mexico six times, um, and so they, they gave him honorary citizenship. They say here uh, uh, fondly that John Paul II was a, the first Mexican pope. Uh, they love John Paul II. Um, and he showed up in his cassock. Mm -hmm. So the government like had this dilemma on their hands when John Paul II showed up because it was still basically the same ruling party from the Cristiana that ruled they call it the perfect dictatorship because mm -hmm. the, the, the name changed, but it was really the same structure mm -hmm. uh, for like 70 years. There was like in the whole country, only a handful of people that ever got elected from a different party. So John Paul II shows up 
in his cassock. And the, the president thinks, yeah, they don't, they're not really interested in the Pope here in Mexico. It's not going to be a big deal. They've forgotten about it. Um, and he arrived and went on this motorcade from Puebla, uh, which is a historic city because there's when Cortez arrived, he had some, some important battles there and made their march on Mexico City over the mountains um, uh, to conquer Mexico City. So they followed the highway from Puebla to Mexico City and millions of people were there. The whole stretch of highway, there was not a section of it where there were not people just wanting to catch a glimpse of him. So they have this dilemma, what are we gonna do? The Pope's the head of state, we're gonna like find him, we're gonna give the Pope a ticket. So they had to make a concession to him and he put certain demands on the government to lighten up certain things. Mexico only established diplomatic relations with the Vatican at that, at that time, finally, wow. in like 1979. And certain things didn't change until later. Like I believe the law on, on wearing a cassock was changed officially in the nineties. Um, and, um, there were changes. I think priests couldn't vote for a long, long time. Um, what else? Um, yeah, and there's still some the, the processions. There's still some things that haven't ever, ever really changed. Hugh asks, uh, "What about the opinion of John Meyer that the Cristeros War wasn't exclusively a religious conflict, but an agrarian one?" Well, I, I think there's there might be something to that um, because everything in Mex Mexican history uh, is tied up with the, the land question. So if you read, uh, there's a great book on the history of Mexico called Mexico Land of Volcanoes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's called that because everything is uh, erupts. <laughs> it's unstable. Yeah. Um, we still, we have here one of the most active volcanoes in, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and uh, so ever since the, the independence, all the political movements have been tied up with uh, questions of, of land dis distribution. No? But um, then it gets more complicated because you have this pretext, like I mentioned, with, with Juarez and, and others who say, you know, they're for the people, they're there to reform the land. And then they, they dismantle these huge estates where in, in, in former times, many of the landlords, they may have had, you know, poor people working on their lands, but from, from the Spanish, uh, really Habsburg times, um, there was this expectation that the landlords had a responsibility for the physical and spiritual well-being of the people that worked the lands. At first, you know, that was the Indians that were um, entrusted to the, those landlords and, and later with more mestizaje, uh, the peasants in, in general, the government comes in and, 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 and takes the land and sometimes gives away a little bit of it to people who don't know how to run a farm on their own, uh, on their own, but hey, hey, have some land and good luck, right? And then these people fall into greater and greater poverty and they become subject to, to certain uh, de demigods. So um, there was probably an element of that, that same um, frustration amongst the poor people in the, in the rural areas uh, of the government doing the same sort, sort of thing, uh, saying that they're going to help them with, with the poverty in rural areas and the agrarian problem and not really doing it, rather enriching their, their, um, their friends. 
Uh, John asked for another uh, Cristero, your favorite Cristero story, other than what you probably just said. <laughs> I was hoping someone would ask that because those are the most fun. Um, so uh, one of the most popular Cristeros um, is uh, Santo Toribio Romo. Uh, maybe you've heard of him uh, because he's become um, <laughs> mixed up with legend. He's, the, he's also supposedly the patron of illegal, illegal immigrants because there's some story about him appearing to some people trying to illegally cross into the United States and giving them some dollars or something. Not <laughs> um, I don't doubt that uh, miracles and apparitions happen, but that sounds a little fishy to me. Yeah. But Santo Toribio Romo uh, was uh, uh, um, uh, the pastor of uh, the church, uh, the parish in Tequila. Tequila is not just a drink, but it's a town. Um, it's also, it's about 45 minutes from, from Guadalajara. Uh, he, was, he was born in uh, a town called Santa Ana de, de Guadalupe. Um, so as a seminarian, the persecution broke forth. And he, in secret, in his free time, built his own little chapel uh, near, his, near his home, where he celebrated his first mass. Um, and, uh, well, just from a personal note, I got to celebrate a, a, a mass there again with a group of seminarians because we bring uh, seminarians down here to learn Spanish and everything. And we take these little tours. And as we're celebrating, at, um, we're getting ready for the mass and there's a lady who's the sacristan there and she's watching in admiration. First of all, seeing all these, these young men in cassocks because to this day, the cassock is not very common in Mexico. And so um, uh, she's watching with amazement. And after the mass, she was just uh, um, floored, you know. She said, I was imagining that uh, as St. Toribio Romo celebrated his first Mass, it probably looked a lot like that. <laughs> she was probably wrong because we had a solemn high Mass, and I think in persecution you probably didn't have that luxury. <laughs> Nevertheless, the essence of the Mass, right? So Santo Toribio Romo, read it, I have a quote here from him, where as a seminarian he wrote in his journal, um, Lord, pardon me if I am overstepping, but I beg you to grant me this favor. Do not let one day of my life pass without saying mass, without embracing you in holy communion. Give me a great hunger for you, a thirst to receive you, that I might be left uneasy all day until I will have drunk of this water which gushes forth unto eternal life. From that blessed rock of your wounded side, oh, my good Jesus, I beg that you grant me to die without having let a single day go by without having said Holy Mass. Okay? However, he was uh, prohibited from saying Mass. Um, an armed rebellion uh, see, began in 1926, okay? and he, he said again in his diary, I pray to the, God, to the true God that he commanded these times of persecution cease. Look, your Christ's cannot celebrate the Holy Mass. Rescue me from this painful test. Your priests having to live without celebrating the Holy Mass. Nevertheless, how sweet it is to be persecuted for the sake of justice. Oh, wow. So he moved from uh, the church. He had to move into an abandoned factory in a ravine outside of town um, and was hiding there. Uh, with his brother, his brother was his vicar. So two brothers were priests in the same town and their sister, because in that time, 
usually the youngest sister in a family, if her brother became a priest, she would give up marriage to uh, serve the, her brother, like as a housekeeper and a cook. So there were, I think, 10 in the family, and the sister was their, uh, their housekeeper, and she took care of her two brothers. And the, um, he says, uh, when he knew his death was imminent, he asked the night before, he, uh, he went to confession to his brother, because uh, he knew he suspected he would soon die. And he said, oh, tequila, you impart to me the tomb, but I give you my heart. Okay? And so they found him hidden there in the, in the factory. They said, this is the pasture. We must kill him. Okay? And so they, they, they shot him. And as he was there dying, the, uh, his sister took him in her arms. And he, she said, you, you need to say the, 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 the call of the Cristeros, right? Viva Cristo Rey. Okay? She, she said, courage, Father Toribio. And may the most merciful Jesus receive you. And he died in, in her arms. So there's a shrine there. They still have his little cell you can visit. Uh, and I had the privilege to celebrate mass on uh, that altar. Um, and can I, can I tell you another one? Go for it. <laughs> okay. So this isn't about, uh, well, there's mar martyrs connected with it. But in Mexico, uh, in, in the t uh, state of Guanajuato, uh, there's a shrine to Cristo Rey. It's called the Hill of Cubilete. Okay, this is another dream of mine uh, to organize a pilgrimage chart style, mm -hmm. uh, a walking pilgrimage to this mountain. Because they, the bishops, okay, I think it was in 1925, um, or maybe the, the idea began even earlier. They wanted to, they saw the tensions and everything and the government trying to take over what is rightfully Christ. And so the, the bishops got together and they said, we're going to consecrate Mexico to the sacred heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And they responded to an initiative begun by Father, uh, Father Mateo, who uh, we talked about before. And Mexico and Spain became the first nations to publicly consecrate uh, the nation to the sacred heart. It was the bishops who did it. They built this monument on top of this hill that's one of the highest in the region and the geographical center of the, of the country. And um, the government did not like it very much, okay? Uh, they invited the, uh, the papal nuncio uh, or the papal observer to come and, and um, uh, consecrate the cornerstone and the day after he was expelled from the country. So that was the severing of di diplomatic relations. Then all these people started climbing this mountain. There were no roads, but they, they had this mass up there. And suddenly there's like 25,000 people who, who climbed uh, uh, like a 15, I think it's almost 15,000 feet high or something like this uh, to, to, to be at mass. Uh, so then the government sent uh, dynamite and blew it up. And then the bishops got together and said, you know what, we're gonna build a bigger one. <laughs> And there were several of them destroyed and all this, but um, it became a chapel of perpetual adoration. The Nocturnal Adoration Society began adoring the Blessed Sacrament on this enormous mountain with a statue of Christ the King on top of it. The, the current statue is not the most beautiful. The older one was better. But nonetheless, from a long way away, you're driving down this highway and you can see this, uh, this enormous statue of, of Christ the King. And it became a rallying cry 
Viva Cristo Rey, the sacred heart is the image. Um, I, we had some uh, prayer cards made um, uh, when, of the, the prayer of consecration. You know, when, they, when the bishops all pleaded that this land belongs to Christ the King, and we are all ready to give you even our blood so that your rights may be pr protected. Um, and at the bottom of that hill, there's a shrine, uh, a chapel to Our Lady Queen of Martyrs. And they have relics of hundreds of priests and lay people who were killed in the, in the persecution. And there you can find a ton of amazing stories. I've seen the statue. I didn't know it was on top of a 15,000 foot mountain in the heart of Mexico, though. Yeah, I, that's a, I, I may not be 100% accurate on the height, but it's a, it's a high mountain. And it's when you go big. up there, you get this great view of, of the, whole, the whole countryside because it's kind of an isolated mountain. Yeah. And so it gives you the spectacular view and you're up there kind of in the clouds and you see Christ reigning over, over Mexico. It's, it's amazing. Is it still an adoration? Uh, they, I don't know if they, they do have adoration there. Uh, it's, I'm not sure if it's perpetual, um, but they, they do have adoration up there. And I've been able to celebrate mass up on top of that uh, mountain as, as well. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I immediately thought of Sacre Coeur when you when you mentioned that when the French built that in reparation for the French Revolution. Yeah, and and isn't it amazing that these enemies of of Christ, um, they, they're they're really um, they 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 know the power of these images, right? Because mm -hmm. if you go to um, uh, uh, the El Cerro de los Angeles outside of Madrid, mm -hmm. just similar, right? This this mountain on this mountain when the king consecrated Spain to the Sacred Heart. You have those terrible photos from the, um, from the Spanish Civil War, uh, which was almost the same time, also bloodshed against the church. And the soldiers are firing at a statue. Yeah. Like, really, you're scared of a statue? But it was so important to them to, to blow it up. And, and, and there, there's miracles, too, because when they dynamited that statue, everything got demolished, basically, except his heart. The Sacred Heart was preserved intact, oh, wow. and it's it's in the custody of these nuns, these Carmelite nuns who live right there next to the site. Yeah, I remember the nuns. I can't remember the name. There was she got dragged down the street a couple times. Uh, over there. uh that's another topic. Oh. <laughs> There's a at Cubilete. They as they mentioned, they tell all these stories, and here I think there's a, a great example. Uh, for us in these times we're living in, especially um, that the church should take into account, I think, and imitate these these examples. Um, there's the, this young uh, priest who uh, was um, called to uh, minister to a convent, and um, he had no fear, right? And uh, so when they asked for sacraments, he went no matter what. He, and, and all these people said, no, father, don't go, don't go. You got to, you got to preserve your life. You got to hide. And he says, I'm a priest. So then they get on his trail and he has to hide out in this, uh, in this house. And uh, the, the lady of the house uh, says to him, you know what, father, I'm sorry, but you're going to get killed. He says, cause he wasn't dressed as a priest. Obviously he says, father, you stand no chance. Says you have priest written all over your face, <laughs> and I love meditating on that because we as priests should think of that all the time. Like, is our zeal for souls so evident 
that someone would say that to us, even if we weren't dressed as priests, like, no, you, you, you proclaim priest to, to everyone. So there's something different you're going to get it. You. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. But any, any parting words? Um, well, I hope more people can discover, uh, all of uh, this, this richness. And that's, as I said, I, I want to, I want to organize a pilgrimage so people can come and get to know all this, but, um, I think it's good to know the story because, um, you know, if this could happen, this kind of persecution of the church could happen so close to home mm -hmm. in a country that um, where more people are Catholic than in the, in, the, in the United States. And so so recently, well, we, we shouldn't think it's in, it's impossible. No? But we need to ask ourselves, I think, if we have the same zeal uh, that, that our forebears had. You know, like, uh, are, would we be willing to risk so much uh, to defend the, the rights of the church? Or are we content to just kind of roll over and, and, and let it all, all slip away? Because, well, dying, dying for the faith is, is hard and scary. I mean, I immediately keep the, the San Patricios keep popping up in my head because I don't know if, how many people know about them. But they remember they were at one of the uh, battles in Texas. And they're shooting at the, the Mexicans and the, the Irishmen are going, wait a minute, there are priests over there. I see nuns. Are, are we on the wrong side? And risking life, they change sides. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why that's why to this day in certain parts of Mexico you have Mexicans whose last names begin with O. Yeah. <laughs> o or O O O something. <laughs> Maybe that'd be a topic for down the road. I, I I found out that about a year ago and became a big fan of those guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, Father, so can we get your final blessing? Yeah. Okay. Benedictio Dimni Potentis, Patris, Efirii, Espiritus Santi, Descenda, Supervos, Emmanuel, Semper. Amen. Amen. Thanks Thank again, you. Steve. Thank you, Father. Appreciate God it. God bless you all.